Thank you very much for sharing with us. Um, I can't stress enough how much we love the Connollys and how much we appreciate their ministry. When Brendan told me that um, he was being promoted to director, it was no surprise whatsoever uh, to me. <laughs> they made a great choice. I encourage you to sign up for the newsletter if you haven't already. Uh, make sure you can be on their list for that. We're going to turn now to the, uh, Isaiah chapter 40 for this evening's message. Isaiah chapter 40, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word this evening. We pray, Father, that you would comfort us through it. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us through it and that you would show us uh, what it is that you have for each and every one of us this evening. For we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Time Magazine has declared that 2020 is the worst year ever. Times goes on to qualify this, of course, highlighting that what they mean is that it's the worst year for those of uh, us who are living, and they qualify it again to those who are probably under 100 years old, and qualify it again by saying that those who have memory uh, of, of only the last few years here. Of course, it's not hard to understand their point. Of all the years that we've lived in, many of us would consider 2020 to be the worst. I even have a t-shirt that says that. So much has happened that it is hard to see beyond the difficulties that we have faced. One writer named Annalise Griffin explains that while no one is actually blaming 2020 for all the difficulties that we face, we're all using it sort of as a scapegoat. She says, Declaring 2020 the worst year ever is a form of collective commiseration that gives a name to a difficult experience and makes us feel less alone. It's a coping mechanism. Blaming the year has become a convenient container into which we can stash every difficult truth and terrible event. It's a way to distance ourselves from the moment. We're choosing to believe that everything that is difficult will pass when the calendar year changes. And Griffin is sort of right here. Many of us are hopeful that at the end of this year, uh, all these hardships will suddenly come to an end. But we're also very aware that it isn't about the year 2020, is it? While these past 12 months might have been horrible for many of us, there are others who have lived much more difficult circumstances than we have. Without discounting the suffering many have undergone this year, 
It isn't hard to imagine that for those of you who have lost children or parents or siblings or spouses in other years, would consider 2020 to pale in comparison to the other hardships that they have faced. See, looking at our pain in relation to a particular year is almost to sort of limit the pain and suffering others have undergone in other time periods. Long before 2020, people have been suffering in extremely painful and difficult ways. And that's because life is hard. We all suffer in this life. That's what it means to be a human being in a fallen world. There is no one who has not felt this in some way or another. And the longer you have lived on this earth, the more opportunities you have had to verify this reality for yourself. There are illnesses in our lives that weigh us down, that bring us down. There are heavier burdens than we can lift ourselves. These are the sort of, these are the sort of illnesses that can be discouraging to us. They're the heavy burdens that can sometimes seem to only become more and more difficult as time goes on. And some of you here at church know exactly what I'm talking about. You're suffering through debilitating illnesses that have no earthly cure. Some of you have suffered through strokes, cancer, heart-related issues, miscarriages, COVID, and much more. Others of you have suffered along those who are suffering in your homes and families with these difficulties and these extreme hardships. And sometimes these trials can come because of illnesses, but other times they also come because of the lives that we have chosen to live. This morning, I mentioned that Pastor Nicoletti preached on patience. Didn't it sort of make you impatient a little bit just to think about those words? To realize all the ways in which you aren't being patient and then become impatient about the fact that you're not patient? To think about all that we have to do still, all the ways in which we still have to grow. When we are impatient, when we are angry or sin against those we love, And when we sin against God in other ways, we suffer the consequences of those actions. And we often feel the shame and guilt that accompanies this. We also feel shame and guilt when we suffer with things things that seem less significant. It's sort of difficult to complain about loneliness or exhaustion or anxiety or despair, or depression, when other people have much more physical and visible illnesses. But all these things impact us in many different and significant ways, either directly or indirectly. And the more we consider these things, the more exasperated we can sometimes become, the more we focus on them. So how do we manage it? How do we respond as believers to these mounting heaps of failures, problems, and trials in our lives? What is your way of getting through these. You may have heard me mention this in the past, but when we were serving in Arequipa, Peru, we would go to funerals. And we would notice a common practice at these funerals, that whenever a parent or a child was mourning their loved one, those around them would say, don't cry, don't cry. They'd try to wipe away their tears and tell them not to cry. They were trying to help. But their solution was to have people cover up their tears, to suppress their feelings. And while we might understand their intent, it's easy to see the error in what they were doing. 
You can't just cover up pain like that and expect it to go away. You can't just ignore the struggles that people are facing. That's a terrible way to deal with issues. And yet, I believe that we all do the same thing, but in different ways. We know the issues we face are too hard for us to deal with, and such that we often can't do anything to alleviate or solve our situation. So in order to cope with our pain and our discouragement, we distract ourselves. We don't let our pain out, and instead we cover it up with all sorts of different things. It could be busyness, cleanliness, leisure, eating, working out, alcohol, TV, work. These are all things that we can use to cover up our feelings with distractions. We find all sorts of ways to press down our suffering or ignore it in order to fool ourselves of our pain. And we're often really good at it. We become masters at hiding the suffering that we have in our hearts from ourselves and from others. Even this morning, a brother who I was speaking to commented that sometimes the very place where we would hope that people would be most genuine and most open, speaking of the church, is the very place where we hide our suffering the most and don't let anyone in. The truth is that that we all suffer, and our suffering weighs heavily on us. And if we only cover it up, we don't have a real solution. That can often drive us to despair. We'll become overwhelmed with everything and often turn towards unhelpful solutions. I mention all this because this is our tendency. And I highlight this because it is something that we need to realize about ourselves. This is a habit for us. This is kind of our M.O. We oftentimes deal with our pain by covering it up instead of dealing with it appropriately. We cover it with a temporary solution. But it's not a solution. It's not a fix. It's only a distraction. And this is not God's solution. God's solution is actually given to us in this text. And the reason that I've spoken at length about suffering, our suffering and our coping mechanisms is to first impress upon us whether or not we'd like to admit it that we all are suffering. We all have different ways in which we suffer. We like, might like to minimize how much we suffer, but we actually do suffer. And we may have more weighing on our hearts than we realize. But second, I spent time on this to give us a greater sense of the gift that God gives us in his comfort. God's comfort really is not only necessary, but very important to us. Without understanding our situation, without understanding our need, we often don't appreciate the generosity of God's comfort. You see, God's message actually comes to Israel in this context, in the context of great suffering, and right after the declaration and threat of judgment. One commentator, E.J. Young, explains that this chapter is given in the midst of the people's tragic condition. And when the heinousness of their sin was clear, it was at that moment that the words of comfort had such greater impact. Another commentator reflects on the placement of this chapter as being significant when he says, It is remarkable that the word of doom and the word of comfort lie side by side. No sooner is just judgment pronounced than an equally just comfort is heralded. You see, God's people were suffering and were feeling the weight of sorrow. Their hearts were heavy 
No doubt the guilt and shame of all their failures throughout the years weighed heavily on their hearts. They had broken covenant with God over and over again, and they were facing the consequences of their failures. And we read of that not just here in Isaiah, but throughout Scripture. With Adam and Eve and their disobedience, Noah's drunkenness. We think of Abraham's faithlessness and being unwilling to wait on God's timing with Sarah. We think of David's murder and adultery. The list of God's people failing throughout Scripture are found over and over again on the pages of God's Word. And their pattern continues today, even in our own hearts. For in addition to our suffering because of different illnesses, we also suffer because of our sins. We also have a pattern of sinfulness and faithlessness, a tendency towards disobedience, unbelief, and betraying our covenant vows. We, like the Israelites, will suffer the consequences of our sinful actions in this life. And like Israel, we will also suffer because we live in a fallen world in corrupt and failing bodies. All these things leave us brokenhearted and feeling utterly helpless. That is hard news to carry. And yet, brothers and sisters, it is in that darkness, in that hard realization of our situation that God's light and his glory shines forth with comfort. And that's how he does things. This is how God likes to demonstrate his power and his glory, breaking into the darkness, breaking into our pain with his comfort. And I thought there was no better uh, illustration that I could think of to illustrate this point than the story of Jonah. Because it's in his story that we see this drastic change. We see this drastic intervention by God. We know the story that Jonah is escaping from God on a ship. And God brings a tremendous storm upon him and the others who are sailing with him. And when it became obvious that the storm was there because of Jonah's disobedience, they threw him overboard after much discussion. He was certain, we read in the text, Jonah was certain that he was as good as dead. And we know that because the words of Jonah in chapter 2 of his book describe his feelings of desperation. He says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. And the roots of the mountains, at the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah saw himself in this sort of aquatic grave. He was certain that his life was over. Even after that fish swallowed him where he surely thought he was dead, he had no idea that he would survive that. He probably thought that he had just become fish food. Or perhaps, maybe at first he had hope, but then after the first day had gone by, and the second day he had lost all hope. But then suddenly, in the midst of his utter darkness, his despair and discouragement, his abandonment from God in his mind, God breaks into that scenario in a marvelous way and he causes that fish to spit him up on, ground, on dry ground. In moments, God takes a man who was as good as dead and deserved to be as good as dead and he gives him life. Jonah says, you brought me up, excuse me, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, salvation belongs to the Lord. 
from being in this aquatic grave of sorts, in the depths of a sea, in the belly of a fish, surrounded by darkness, God saves Jonah. And in the same way, despite the fact that we justly deserved eternal punishment and suffering on this earth, God comes and he speaks tenderly to us, to Jerusalem. As with Jonah's salvation, Israel's salvation has nothing to do with their abilities or their good works. As with Jonah's salvation, they could not save themselves or make restitution for their sins. Jonah didn't save himself any more than we can save ourselves. God comes to us when our situation is so bleak and so dark that we know that we are saved not because of anything within ourselves. And he speaks tenderly to us. He extends comfort just as he did with his people, just as he did with Jonah, he does with us. And this is an important note to make because some believe that we can in some way make restitution for our sins with God. That somehow we can pay for all the sins that we have committed. But here it is evident that we cannot assume that God extends his comfort because we have suffered enough or for our sins in this world. One commentator says, is it that they will have suffered, then suffered enough to cancel out those earlier sins? Will a coolly judicial God then declare that the case is closed? Does Israel somehow save herself? Hardly. The cause for encouragement is solely the activity of the Lord. His coming into this sphere of human activity Neither Israel nor any other human agency is the cause of the comfort here extended. It is the coming of God. So we read here what we read throughout the New Testament that is not because of works, but by God's grace, solely God's work on their behalf. But why? Why does God do this? Why does he do this for a sinful and a ruined people? We can pick up clues in this text that he does it because of his covenant. Look closely at who is offering the comfort in this passage and who is the intended recipient. The words are spoken to my people and they are spoken by your God. Without a question, this is covenantal language. No longer do we hear the scornful language, this people. Now we hear my people. The people belong to God in this passage. For he has chosen them, and even though they may forsake him, he will not abandon them. For God does not forsake his own. The covenant God keeps his end of the covenant agreement, regardless of Israel's faithlessness. And for that reason, he can speak tenderly to Jerusalem. For that reason, he can speak comfort, because their comfort was coming because God himself was assuring their salvation and their comfort by fulfilling both sides of the covenant. And if you're following this text, you might notice that throughout this chapter, there are mentions of a voice crying. Here God says, cry to Jerusalem about the comfort that I am proclaiming. And in response to this command from God, we read in verse 3 that a voice cries. The answer to this question is, is the key to understanding the passage. What is it that this voice is crying? Again, we need to remember that Jerusalem had been in pain and suffering, and now there's a cry 
that is answering God's command to cry out comfort. What does that cry say? Look at verse 3. It says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then in verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. These verses help us understand why God is telling the people that Jerusalem's iniquity is pardoned and that the full measure of her sins has been dealt with. Because these are the words of John the Baptist when he sees Jesus. And he later cries out again, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist using these very words from Isaiah chapter 40, is applying this very prophecy to the person of Jesus. He is saying Jesus is the reason for the comfort. When God tells Isaiah to cry out comfort, the cry, the response is that Jesus is coming. Comfort, comfort my people. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received double for all her sins. Jesus has taken upon himself the punishment of us all. This is the comfort of the nations. But it doesn't end there. Every year we go with the youth to uh, Yakima, Washington, where we work with Sacred Road Ministries to minister to the Native Americans there for a week. And the youth always help out with different projects um, and then do a vacation Bible school type ministry in the afternoons. But one of the most significant things that happens on that trip, one of the things that makes the greatest impact in the lives of the children that we are ministering to is to stoop down to their level. They get down on the ground and they color with these children. They play four square. They give them piggyback rides. When they get down to the level of these children and love them where they are, playing with matchbox, car, max, matchbox cars or skip rope or whatever it may be, you see the deep connection and it communicates volumes to these children. It speaks more than sometimes even the words that they're trying to communicate them about the Bible. And in a similar way, this evening we were able to hear a presentation from Brendan and Aaron Connolly. As I mentioned before, Alicia and I had the privilege of being able to see them in Peru, and we quickly know that they're some of the most qualified and gifted missionaries that we know. They just do missions right. They understand the culture and the inherent need for trust among the indigenous people. So what do they do? They enter into their homes. Their kids play with the kids of the locals. They travel to distant villages and enter into the lives of people they minister to. This level of connection makes a world of a difference and makes the gospel that they are presenting take on a whole new dimension in ways hours of teaching could never do in this culture. This is what missionaries call incarnational missions. And the reason I bring this up is because this type of missions is called incarnational because it imitates the incarnational work of Jesus. You see, Jesus, being God, descends into the world and he empties himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Jesus called Emmanuel is God with us. This is God becoming incarnate. Not only does Jesus come into this world, but he takes on all of our sins and he comes to dwell with us, to connect with us, to suffer alongside us. He comes to show us the good news of the gospel and fulfill an important prophecy of comfort and dwelling among us. Simeon, a righteous and devout man who had been waiting for the consolation of Israel, held Jesus in his arms and he blessed God for letting him see the salvation of the peoples, saying that he could now depart in peace because he recognized that Jesus was the consolation of Israel. These days of Christmas, we celebrate the incarnate consolation. We see in Jesus the comfort and the light of the nations. We see the Savior of the whole world. And we see our very own comfort, God with us, the gospel incarnate. God would have been just if he had left us in eternal punishment. That was the deal. You sin, you die. And we did much more than sin once or twice. But not only did God not do this to us, but instead he showed us grace. And not only did he do that, but he came into this world tenderly as a babe in the manger and dwelled among us. Do you see how much he loved us? Do you see how he stooped down to our level and played in the ground, on the ground with us? How he incarnationally showed us his love? How he showed and spoke his love to us in a way that we would understand, not just through words, but by living among us, showing us his great love and comfort. When I was in elementary school, I had a friend named Matthew Stanmeyer, and he had a basketball hoop across the cul-de-sac from where we lived. And he would play on it all the time, and I wanted one too. So one year I had left enough hints for my parents, and I asked them uh, for a basketball hoop. And when Christmas came along, I got a basketball. I thought, wow, this is great. This is kind of the teaser for the bigger gift that is coming. (laughs) And then I heard something like, now you can play at your friend Matthew's basketball hoop. And I was crushed. I don't want to go over to his house to play basketball. I want my own basketball hoop. My hopes were dashed. But then they were immediately elevated when my parents, a few seconds later, pulled out a massive box that had the picture of the basketball hoop on it. In many ways, when Jesus was crucified, in a very, very different way, the hopes of the disciples were crushed. They thought that their hope of salvation and comfort was gone. We know this because the disciples on the road to Emmaus felt like they had made a mistake. They said, we thought he was the Savior. But at the end of Matthew 28, we read that the story is not over. There's more to the gift. Yes, the disciples were not ushered into heaven immediately upon Jesus' arrival. They would still need to wait. They would still need to suffer. But their hopes weren't dashed. God's comfort would remain with them in an incredibly real way. Jesus, before he left his disciples, said, Behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. And as if it were not enough that God had kept both sides of the covenant, and as if it were not enough that he would 
extend his mercy to us and send his one and only son into the world, he continues to give us his gift of comfort today by being with us to the end of the age. Jesus continues to comfort us through the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. He continues to speak tenderly to us even after his resurrection. While we live in this world, we will continue to endure the difficult suffering and hardships that, have, that a fallen world entails. We are going to suffer. We're going to continue suffering even after December 31st, 2020. Life will continue to be hard. We will suffer the loss of our abilities. We will lose our health, our friends, our family. We will continue to have broken bones, broken hearts, and broken lives. We will lose a lot and we will suffer in ways that we had never imagined. We will continue to face and lose battles, face hardships and work challenges. We will struggle on the mission field. We will struggle in our church. We will struggle in our workplaces. This world has always been a place of struggle and hardship. But that is not the end of the story. That is not the end of Jesus' gift. Not only will Jesus come to end all of our warfare once and for all, he gives us the Holy Spirit now. That is the great comfort. Dr. Kelly Capick, one of my Covenant College professors, explains in his book, Embodied Hope, which I highly recommend, that as Christians, we do not look at tears, hurt, and grief as good things. These are the very problems that God promises to one day liberate us from. And yet this side of glory, it is also true that God can and does bring about good in the midst of the dreadful. And through it, we discover that God is faithful, that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. As Daniel's friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego discovered, God's faithfulness does not necessarily mean that we will not face the flames, but it does mean that he will be with his people in the midst of those flames. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.8, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul could continue to persevere in the midst of hardships and suffering, and we can too, because Jesus has promised that he will be with us always. He allows us to face the flames of persecution, suffering, illness, and so much more, and he has promised to be with us in the midst of those dreadful moments. This is the greatest comfort that we could ever ask for. Not only to know that one day God will end all of our suffering and warfare once and for all, but that even now, while we wait patiently, that he cares intimately about our suffering and our greatest moments of need right now. And when we have nothing to cling to, not our health, not our loved ones, not our jobs, our finances, or success, we will find that we still have Jesus. And if we have nothing but Jesus, we have everything. Amen.